0: Shalom, Mishpucha. Shalom, family. Mishpucha is a Hebrew word. It means family. And <laughs> we're the Mishpucha, the family with a Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non Jewish people, where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man, one new humanity, getting ready, Mishpucha, to blow the grandest shofar. Oh, the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone, everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone, everywhere, to be red hot for the Messiah. Now, I have a question for you. Uh, The Book of Revelation, if I was to ask you, do you understand it, what would your answer be? And yet, so many, their answer is no, and some even worse. I've given up. I just can't understand it. I'm, I'm too practical. I'm too pragmatic um uh, and then others even say well it's already finished it's already happened uh so uh, uh these are people that are called a uh, uh and um uh, that it, that it's in the past and the book actually says there is a horrific curse for those that tamper with this book every I mean, your name will be taken out of the book of life if you remove words from this. And then this book of Revelation actually says there is a blessing in reading and hearing the words of the book of Revelation. So I have my good friend Perry Stone on the phone. And Perry says that he has invested. Listen to this. It's it's, it's really mind blowing to me. 80,000 hours in researching the Bible. And I want to get some answers, because I believe what the Bible says, Perry. I believe that this book, there's a blessing attached with understanding it. What is your understanding?
1: Well, Sid, first of all, thank you for having me on the program. I'm looking forward to this. I believe it's going to really help the people. The book of Revelation, as you said, has a blessing placed upon it for those that read and hear. But the difficulty that people have in dealing with the book is the symbolism that's used. Uh, For example, there's a woman traveling in heaven with a child in chapter 12. There's this dragon in the heavens, a great red dragon in chapter 12. There's a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. And so in what is called apocalyptic literature, and apocalyptic literature is... In in our case, biblical literature that predicts the future through symbolism, uh, it uses what we call biblical symbols. The book of Daniel, let's say chapter 7 uses it. The metallic image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, each metal in Daniel chapter 2 of that image represents a prophetic empire. And so one of the first things I've learned is that the Bible will always interpret itself when it comes to symbolism. For example, we know that when Satan came into the garden, he used a serpent. And so throughout the Bible, a serpent represents either sin or it represents Satan, represents disobedience or evil. Uh, A lamb, for example, uh, the first mention of a lamb in a Major sense of the word was the uh, Passover where the lamb 's blood was offered, so throughout the Bible, you come to the New Testament, Jesus is introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, and then, in the book of Revelation, the word lamb is mentioned twenty seven times. And all but one time, it has reference to Jesus Christ. And throughout the book makes that clear. So the reason people don't study it many times is because the symbolism is a little bit difficult. But However, the Bible itself interprets its own symbolism. So that's kind of a – I would call that a basic 101 understanding of the book of Revelation. But the biggest thing that we encounter – when uh, we talk about the book of Revelation is the various interpretations that have come down through history as to...
0: Yeah, yeah, I pick up some Bibles and they have four different views and I'm saying, if these experts don't know, how can I
1: possibly know? That's a, that is such a good question. It, re, it really is. Well, let me just let me just run through this just real quick for people's knowledge, and that is uh, some of the some of the beliefs. First of all, there's the preterists who believe that the end time prophecies were all fulfilled in the first century. There's some very good people that believe the historical interpretation that believe that from the first century till the return of Christ. The book of Revelation has gradually been fulfilled. A few people talk about the allegorical interpretation, simply saying, well, the book of Revelation is just an allegory between uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, the earthly battle for the earthly Jerusalem, good, evil, God, and Satan. Literally, my staff will tell you, I spend eight to ten hours a day in studying. I have studied this every angle. i studied preterist, historical, allegorical, the amillennialist, and the, the best—
0: Perry, uh, Perry, I watch you on television— That's number one. And number two, if you didn't tell me that you studied 80,000 hours, I would know that you did just by listening to you. But go ahead.
1: (laughs) Well, the reason I'm saying that is I just don't study what I believe, which is the book of Revelation from chapter four to chapter 22 is future. I don't just say that off the top of my head. I say it because I have delved into all the other beliefs. And honestly, if you, if you don't interpret the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 22 as a future event, all the other theories start falling apart, the, whether it's historical, the preterist, the allegorical interpretation. There are so many places inside the book. Let me give you an example here. The book of Revelation alludes to, in the judgments and in certain passages, it alludes to the Old Testament – so many times it's even it 's sometimes difficult to count, so in other words, the Old Testament prophets who predicted how the sun would be darkened, how they predicted the rivers would dry up, you see that prophetic statement that the prophet made in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the book of revelation
0: yeah yes, but uh, but many would say, but it was fulfilled be- way before, and it 's not a future event.
1: Well, let me, can can we let's talk about one group here. All right. I think this group needs to be talked about they're called preterist. Now, here's the basic teaching of a preterist. A preterist teaches that the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled and Matthew chapter 24, all those signs mentioned there up to the time of, up to the sign of the Son of Man appearing has already been fulfilled, and it was fulfilled around the year 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple. Now, first of all, let's talk about where they get the idea from of the fulfillment. Jesus made one statement in which he said to his disciples, there are some of you standing here that shall not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, you read After the resurrection of Jesus in John 21, that they are at the Sea of Galilee at Tiberias. And Jesus predicts to Peter that he's going to live to be an old man. And Peter says, what about John? And Jesus said concerning John in our Bible, what is it to you, Peter, if he's still alive when I come? And the next verse says, then this saying went abroad among the disciples that that disciple should not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. Jesus said, what is it to you if he tarries till I come? Now, it is clear from that verse that the early church considered John, the apostle, a link to the return of the Lord. So here's what the preterists have done. They have said, okay, according to Jesus, the kingdom will come when John is still living. John died in about 96 to 100 A.D. Therefore, Jesus had to have returned and brought the kingdom in at some point before the death of the apostle John. So they used those two verses. Now, here's what Jesus in reality was saying, Sid. It's very simple. John, the author of the book of Revelation, he did not die. He was the last of the uh, 12 original apostles. He outlived all of them. Most of the apostles were dead by 70 A.D., with the exception of possibly two, and John was one of them. John lived up until 95 A.D., and on the Isle of Patmos, he wrote the book of Revelation. He saw the New Jerusalem that nobody in the Old Testament saw. He saw the White throne Judgment and the details of it that no one else in the Old Testament saw. He saw the Lord coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords on a white horse, no Nobody in the Old Testament saw. He saw the kingdom. He did not die until he saw the kingdom. And so when Jesus was saying this, he was alluding to John not dying until he saw the vision of Revelation. Now, John didn't know that was going to happen, but it happened, and that was the fulfillment of that verse he did not die till he saw the kingdom. But the preterists take that verse to say, John was still living in 70 AD. Therefore, the book of Revelation had to be written before the year 70 AD. Thus, Matthew 24, all of those signs of the coming of the Lord had to be fulfilled by 70 AD. Thus, the book of Revelation had to be fulfilled by 70 AD. Now, here's how There's one way you totally destroy the preterist doctrine. They admit this. If they if they will admit it, they'll admit this, and that is when the book of Revelation was written. Every preterist I've ever studied after says the book of Revelation was written between 66 to 70 A.D. before the destruction of the temple, and that way they force this uh, fulfillment of Matthew about there's earth there's earthquakes, famines, and pestilence. And they will talk about the great famine that hit Judea. They'll talk about an earthquake that hit Israel. They'll talk about the pestilence that broke out with the famine. They'll talk about Josephus when he talked about the cosmic signs that occurred in the heaven a star appeared like a sword and a comet was seen for one year. Josephus talks about that happening before the year 70. So they take all these things, combining them together, and they tell people this has already been fulfilled. Why are you looking for a rapture? There's not going to be one. Why are you looking for God to restore Israel? Israel has no significance because the church has replaced Israel. And they get into all this false teaching and it's false teaching because they put the book of Revelation as being written in the year 66 to 69, 69 to 70 AD. Here's the problem. The emperor, and history bears this out, the early fathers bear this out, that Domitian was the emperor at the time that John was arrested. The emperor Domitian Domitian is the one who arrested John, put him in Rome to boil him in oil. John did not die. An early father wrote about that. They then sent John to the Isle of Patmos where they thought he was going to die there. He didn't die. On the Isle of Patmos in approximately 95 AD, 25 years after the destruction of the temple is when John saw the book revelation and the vision of the apocalypse. Now, what happens is, when that historical fact, and it is not a speculation, it is a fact, it can be proven in historical writings. But when John it writes this vision in 95 AD, he did not die until he saw the kingdom, number one, and number two, it blows away the preterist doctrine that the preterists say everything has already been fulfilled in 70 AD.
0: Oh, Perry, We're out of time. We'll pick up here on tomorrow's broadcast. But if God himself says there is a blessing for hearing the words in the book of Revelation, and you would lose your very salvation if you tamper with this book, it's important. It's an end-time book. And I want you to have the best teacher I know who will totally demystify the book of Revelation. You will understand it. I promise you seven DVDs, and a syllabus study guide available for a gift of $75. Call or write today because I want you to have the blessing from those that hear the book of Revelation. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 447 2697 Perry why is it so important, especially now, especially now, that people understand the book of Revelation?
1: Because I believe with all of the signs and the uh, restoration of Israel, the restoration of the city of Jerusalem, the Jews returning, which are the end time signs that the prophet saw, that when you come to the, that time frame, which we are now in, uh, the, the nations aligning for the war of God and Magog, Ezekiel 30 and 39, when you come to that time, you're coming to what the prophets call the time of the end. And if we're in the time of the end, we have to understand and need to understand uh, what the Lord has predicted for the earth, what is about to happen. It's not, just, it's not just keeping us informed, Sid. It's the fact that a lot of unsaved people, family members of people who are listening to your program right now, don't know Christ and maybe have had no interest in following him. They don't understand the redemptive covenant. But when they Understand, hey, the Bible has predicted things that are happening. A lot of times, you can get an unsafe person, uh, someone without a covenant with the Lord, to listen into that type of teaching. Uh, just real quick, Sid, I know that in our own ministry, we have had a number of, and I would never n- name them, but well-known uh, Jewish business people from from the northeastern part of the United States who have come to know the Lord because of prophecy teaching. They saw the Bible is real; it is true. It's happening. Israel is in prophecy. And the Holy Spirit opened up their understanding to believe. And so it's not just about us knowing, but it's about, uh, you know, he wrote, he wrote, seven, look, the whole book is written to seven churches in Asia. He wanted the churches to understand something. So if he gave a message to those seven churches. Surely today we as the church should understand what he's saying.
0: Uh, well, how, how about, how about this? Uh, Do you really want to understand what the mark of the beast is? Do you really want to understand what the 666 means? Do you want to understand about the two witnesses? Do you want to understand about the rapture? (laughs) I mean, give me a break. If they don't understand these basics, they flat don't understand anything. Now, there there is a teaching I have to ask you about, Perry Stone. Uh, It's called... Kingdom Now, and it means a number of things, but it really means that the church replaces Israel, takes over, uh, and hands the, the kingdom to Jesus on a silver platter, and that things are not getting uh, worse. They're actually getting better. Uh, do you think these people are on some kind of drugs? Perry? <laughs> well,
1: if, if, if this is getting better, I hate to see it when it gets bad, you know. But let, let me go back and talk about this. This was the same mistake that the Pharisees made. when the, when G, When Christ came the first time the Pharisees were looking for a political leader with a religious slant who could overpower Rome. You know, even the disciples, when Christ is going back to heaven, what's the last question they ask him? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they knew based on the Old Testament prophecies that Israel was going to become a premier nation, a king messiah was ruling over Israel, that Jerusalem would be the city of the nations, and so they knew that Christ was Mashiach, they knew he was the Messiah. So their curiosity was, okay, what's your plan now? You're raised from the dead. You've conquered death, hell and the grave. Surely now is the time to set up the kingdom. But their idea was political kingdom. Now, there is, according to the New Testament, the the kingdom of God, which is on earth now working through the believer, working through the ecclesia, which is the called out ones or or the true church. And Here's the difference, though. It is not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And this is where they missed it in Jesus' first coming. He came the first time as a lamb to suffer to introduce a spiritual kingdom. But when he returns back to earth, he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is the political kingship, rulership of the planet. So
0: they're mixing both up, is what's going
1: on. Exactly, exactly. In other words, there is a group of individuals who, when they think of the kingdom, here's what the Bible says about the kingdom it says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's for the individual believer. But also the kingdom of God is the spirit of God on the earth working through the individual believer to see people healed, to see people delivered, to see people set free from demonic activity, and to see people saved. So the kingdom that we're participating in is in is a spiritual kingdom of redemption to bring people into a redemptive covenant so that they can be a part of the kingdom of heaven and when Mashiach returns become a part of his kingdom on earth which Revelation 20 says he rules 1,000 years from the city of Jerusalem. The prophet Ezekiel says King David will be the the head of Jerusalem and he'll be over the tribes of Israel. The, the, The land will be divided up among the 12 tribes again. The saints of God will rule from the holy city. We'll be kings and priests and rulers. And so, just like the Pharisees in their day, they got it mixed up. They looked for a political king who could conquer the enemies of Israel, and instead they ended up getting a suffering lamb dying on a cross for giving sins. They they got it mixed up. People today have got it totally turned around because they're saying the church is going to grow to the point to where we're going to take over the government and we're going to take over the leadership and we're going to take over the house and the senate. Let me give you one example, and I'm going to step over into the area of uh, politics for just a moment. But let's take the issue of abortion. Well, you know, one of these days we're going to just- do that's
0: not politics. That's pure Bible. <laughs> but well, go it ahead.
1: Is, <laughs> it is but, it's, but, but in the political realm, we had three presidents who actually were in power for over 20 some years who said abortion was wrong and it never changed in the law of the nation. So somehow we think, and I wish it would, I wish we could raise up an army of people that would get the people in there that would overturn it. And maybe that will happen, and that would be great. But the the kingdom of God has an influence on the earth through the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit and through our prayers and through our giving and through all we do to spread the message of the gospel because the sign of the end is this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations and then the end would come our assignment now is not to try to get inside of uh, the political realm and make a change that way because here's the here's the bottom line Jesus knows that the only way of changing a person's thinking is to change their heart and the only way of changing their heart is a spiritual heart trans, uh, transformation or spiritual heart surgery where he comes in and changes the stony hard heart of a person and gives them a heart of, of life and a, a spiritual heart through the word of God and through a redemptive covenant. So our, our, the kingdom right now is to preach the kingdom message of the gospel of Christ to all the nations of the world see people delivered from the hand of Satan and the power of death, hell, and, the, and 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 in the kingdom of darkness that's working against them, bringing them into the kingdom of God. Then the king himself in Revelation 19, at the end of a seven-year tribulation, returns with the armies of heaven to set up an actual physical, and I can say it, geopolitical kingdom on the planet. And that's when the Bible says he rules with a rod of iron, and the nations have to come up and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And the prophet Zechariah said, if they don't, there'll be no rain on their land. It'll be a, their land will become cursed, and that's when the king will rule and reign. So basically, in a summary, uh, dominion theology or kingdom now basically has said, okay, the church has replaced Israel, and they take all the scriptures designated only for Israel and apply them for the church, and that the Christian has replaced the Jew, and they take any promise to the Jew and apply it to the church. However, it's very clear in the Bible, if there's anything that's clear, and that is you have to keep... The script, the text in the context. You have to read the verse to see who it's addressed to. The Bible prophecies are either addressed to Israel, the actual nation of Israel, to the Hebrew people as individuals or as a unit, or to the church in the New Testament, especially there in the New Testament, the church, or to the Gentile nations. Now, there there are other prophecies addressed to individuals, of course, but the the entire prophecies are going to be addressed to either the church, Israel, the Jews, or the Gentile nations, and so when people read it, you cannot cross over a scripture specifically for Israel. You know, if we look, look, this is hilarious. If we say that the church has replaced Israel, then Paul says in Romans that Israel is blind in part. So we have to change that to the church is blind in part, and then we have to say all Israel shall be saved, all the church shall be saved. Well, go- uh,
0: I sure hope the church is saved. <laughs>
1: You have, to, you have to go to the whole New Testament and change all those verses from Israel to the church, and you're, you're really stepping uh, really on dangerous ground because you're tampering with with uh, the Word of God. You know, it, wait,
0: wait a second. What about the book of Revelation, where it ends that your name is literally going to be taken out of uh, the, the book of life if you tamper with it? To me, tampering with God's Understanding for the Jew of I- and Israel is tampering with God, and uh, I don't I don't know how far I can say this, but I believe the dividing line of the false church and the true church in the last days will be a proper understanding of the Jew in Israel.
1: Oh, I, I, I'm totally in agreement with it. You know, one of the things, and I was on uh, a great a great network recently, Daystar, and I know you're familiar with Marcus, but I did a teaching. And, you know, Israel is called God's son and God's firstborn in the book of Exodus. They're called God's son. God said to Pharaoh, let my son go. And to be the firstborn or the first son means that they were the first nation raised up by the Lord with a covenant. Now you, you can find where God or God's people made covenant with other nations. Sometimes it was wrong, the wrong kind of covenant. But you can see where David would make covenants, Solomon made covenants. But as far as an individual nation, and this is what people don't understand a lot of times, there is no nation on the face of the earth. Now our fathers made, a co- our founding fathers in America made covenants with God for giving the country to him, asking his blessing, believing it was a country of divine providence. And you can study your early uh, documents and write, uh, early writers and early founders to see that. But Israel was the only nation on the planet, and the only nation there ever will be, that was divinely appointed by God as his firstborn nation. I mean, Sid, just the other day, I did a message in which I talked about the language of God and what is the original language in heaven that God speaks. And to make a long story short, it's some form of Hebrew. God spoke to Paul out of heaven in the Hebrew language in the book of Acts. And even at the Tower of Babel, when men were all one language, it was the language that was handed down from Adam to Noah all the way to the tower.
0: But You know what? We're running out of time. Perry has just come out with a new teaching series that I mean it caught my ear so strongly when I heard him talking about the teaching on the book of Revelation because I was one, Perry, that is I'm such a pragmatic and this my biggest asset's my biggest liability. I'm a pragmatic type of person, I'm a logical type of person, and as you know, you don't have all the facts because you're dealing with God. But I, if I can't understand the book of Revelation, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. But when you came out with your seven DVD series in syllabus called Breaking the Apocalypse Code. And by the way, what does the word apocalypse
1: mean? Well, in Greek, Apocalypsis is it's the t- actually the real name of the book of Revelation in Greek. And it means the unveiling of something which was hid, something which was concealed to, to unveil it, to release the understanding of it.
0: And if there's ever been a time to release the understanding of it, it's now. Uh, I have to ask you this question. Based on your 80,000 hours of research, how close are we to the return of Jesus?
1: You know, I get I get asked that question quite a bit. And, and honestly, if I were to just put a summary on time, I could say it, I really don't know. I, I don't have a clue because God's time is not always our time. I will tell you, though, that the alignment of in Daniel 11 the, uh, the the fall of Egypt and the collapse of the Egyptian government in a situation there the collapse of Libya those are two nations specifically listed in Daniel 11 that the future Antichrist will take over so there had to be a shake up in the governments there to fill to create a void um, the situation in Syria where we almost went to war with Syria and the fact that he has the chemical weapons you know, Isaiah 17 talks about Damascus being destroyed, and then you have Ezekiel uh, chapter uh, 38 and 39, which is a very famous, well-known prophecy about the war of Gog of Magog, and it mentions Persia as one of the leading nations that will be an enemy of Israel. And of course, Persia is Iran, and for several years, Iran has been attempting to develop nuclear uh, weapons, and Israel has, you know, happened to worry about that and deal with that and so those types of predictions uh, especially as it relates to wars, because we know the Antichrist in chapter 13, it says who can make war against him. Wars are going to be very prominent in the time of the end and also in during what we call, the, what the Bible calls the tribulation period, it's that uh, those are some of the great signs. Those are some of the indicators that we're really moving into another cycle. I think, I think Sid, that prophecy moves in seasons and it moves in cycles. Uh, that, you know, even the disciples, said, Christ said to the disciples, it's not for you to know the times and seasons of when I'm going to set up the kingdom in Israel that the Father has put in his own power. And so uh, Paul later writes in Thessalonians, brethren, you have no need that I write to you of the times and seasons because now you know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night.
0: Well, based on your 80,000 hours of research in the Bible, Mm -hmm. is there anything stopping the Lord's return in the next decade.
1: I don't see anything. I think there's two major prophecies that are going to be fulfilled by the church. The church is the only one that can fulfill these. Number one is Matthew chapter 24 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations and then the end would come. So the message of the gospel and that Christ is coming, that's the kingdom, that the king is coming, is going to become revived around the world. People are going to begin to hear about the return of the Lord. They're going to be knowing it and when that message spreads and people receive it and only God knows when that fullness of time comes because it is called the fullness of time in Ephesians chapter 1, 9, and 10 that that dispensation of the fullness of time that's when he gathers together the family of God in heaven and earth. Only God knows that time. When that takes place that's, that's part of the church's uh, assignment for the time of the end. And the second thing is Acts chapter 2 also mentioned in Joel 2 how that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh in the last days and there will be uh, vision and there will be dreams. This is happening already. Um,
0: Especially to Muslims and Jews, which is really getting me excited.
1: Oh, uh, we're, <laughs> we're, having, we're, seeing, we're seeing Muslims contact us who are having visions of Jesus appear to them and say he is the way and the truth and the life, and they're turning their heart without any actual preacher preaching to them.
0: Perry, on yesterday's broadcast, uh, we were talking about a great, great heresy uh, that's sweeping throughout Christendom, uh, and, and it's called—it has lots of names. It's called Kingdom Now or Preterist, uh, which believes that everything's been fulfilled, uh, and, and and many of them believe uh, that, it, that things are getting better, and because of the church, we are going to take over and then hand the kingdom to— to uh, Jesus on a silver platter when he returns, uh, that things are really getting better. What's your opinion of that?
1: Uh, Well, if my dad were living today, he would probably make a comment something like this. I can't believe people are that dumb to believe that. (laughs) (laughs) But looking at it from a total scriptural perspective, go—this is what I would say to anyone—go to the New Testament scriptures about the time of the end, the last days, the seducing spirits, departing of the faith. Just look at the verses that they wrote, and you have two train tracks going in the same direction toward the time of the end. On one, you have the church who who has overcomers, who are going to be overcomers, who are going to be looking for the Lord to return, but at the same time are doing the work of God. And it's a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, the true church. So you have that group, and they're all over the world. Same time running on a parallel track. In the last days, some will depart to faith, giving heat to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, conscience here with the hot, hot iron, truce breakers, incontinent, unthankful, unholy. You start reading. Not just about the signs of earthquakes, famines, and pestilence, which you know we've always through history had those we're having more of those now than we've ever had, which is a sign. But when you look at what he describes what like let's say Paul wrote to Timothy about, he describes the condition Romans one uh, men with men, women with women, doing that which is unseemly, uh worshipping the creature more than the creator, all these things, the days of lot, the days of Noah, comparing those times to now you it, it You can't see the world getting better because right now in Ephesians chapter 2 and 2, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. But in Corinthians, Paul called him the god of this world. And in Luke 4, if you want a verse that really will amaze people when they read it, when Satan is tempting Jesus to bow and worship him and he said, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, Satan said, For they have been delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I can give them. Now that doesn't sound possible. Because we know that in Daniel 2, God, it says God is the one that can set up a king and take out a king. So in the ultimate, God can control who is there prophetically according to his will. But at the same time, this is how you explain a dictator coming to power, wrecking a country and killing people. This is how you can explain a world leader. That is such a terrible world leader because his heart is inspired by Satan. And if it was not a temptation for Jesus to bow and take the kingdoms of the world, it would not have been a temptation. So it says he was tempted and so, somehow, Satan has this limited control at this time. And the only way, Sid, that he's going to loose the grip of world governments and some people who lead them is the return of the Lord when Satan is bound a thousand years in the bottomless pit. And in the book of Revelation, it's the Greek word abyssos, which is the word abyss, which is a huge chamber somewhere underneath the earth. And he is confined there for a period of a thousand years. Then there is peace on earth for the thousand years. They beat their swords into plowshares, meaning there's no more war, and the lion and the, you know, the calf laid down together, and the, 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 the young child, Isaiah said, can even get around a snake and not be afraid in the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. That does not happen before the king returns. And I like to say it this way. I think this kind of sums up the whole way I think about this subject. You, you cannot have a kingdom unless you have a king. And he has made us kings and priests unto God. But there's only one king, king of kings, Lord of lords. That's Revelation 19. And when Christ... Christ, oh, I just feel something right here to to say this. In heaven, Christ is presently the high priest of the profession of our faith. But in the book of Revelation, this is the whole theme of the book. This is why it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation shows you the transference of Jesus from high priest in heaven, where he's been up there for over 1900 years interceding for us, to becoming a king of kings and lord of lords. He was a, he was called a prophet on earth. He is the high priest of heaven now. He will be the king of kings in the future. And you can't have an actual kingdom on earth until you have the king ruling over the kingdom. And that kingdom rule of the Messiah comes in Revelation 19. And the timing is whenever the end of the seven-year tribulation takes place, and he comes back with the armies of heaven who are the saints who have been in heaven with him, and he literally sets up a visible, physical, kingdom on earth. Zechariah said that Jewish people would even go to him and say, where did you get these wounds? And he will say, I got them in the house of my friends. Christ will even maintain the scars that he had at his crucifixion to prove he was the suffering Messiah, worthy to be the lion of the tribe of Judah and become the king over in the entire world during a 1,000-year reign.
0: Uh, Perry, there is so much controversy, so many different views on the rapture, when the rapture's going to be. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you have the clearest teaching on this. If you enjoy this teaching, you're going to love his seven DVDs on the series Breaking the Apocalypse Code, Unlocking Future Prophetic Mysteries Predicted in the Book of Revelation. Uh, and understanding how the ancient feasts, the temple, and the priestly codes unlock clues to the apocalypse, you must have the blessing of understanding the book of Revelation in these last days available for a gift of $75. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 447 2697 there's something Perry Stone that that just seems to be so confusing to to most Christians. And it's got to do with the uh the rapture, uh the is it pre trib, mid trib? Uh, is it pre-rapture? Uh, there's so many of these uh, different views that are, that are floating around. Uh, many people uh, say this whole pre-trib rapture was developed by some woman in the in the 1800s. Uh, let's start out with basics. Define what the rapture. Uh, is. What's the word even mean?
1: Well one of the one of the complaints that people have when you or I, for example, mention the word rapture is well it's nowhere in the New Testament so you're using a word that's not in the Bible. First of all, we use theological words in English all the time. Trinity is not in the Bible. Millennial reign is not in the Bible. Second coming is not in the Bible. They are terms that we use to identify certain scriptures and what they refer to. That's point one. Rapture comes from the Latin translation of the Bible by St. Jerome. And it comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be, and here's the phrase, caught up. All right. In the Greek, it's harpazo, which means to snatch out suddenly by force, to seize out of danger's way. But when translating from Greek to Latin, we came up with—it comes up with the English word translated from Latin, rapture, to be caught up, to be caught up with joy, to be caught up with ecstasy, to be—to just generally be caught up. So he used that word. Now, we use the English word. Now, the Bible talks about the gathering together unto Him. It talks about the general assembly of the firstborn in heaven. I mean, if people wanted to call the catching up and the gathering together, the general assembly or the gathering together, the catching up – the, those terms are fine, but we speak, we take one word that people generally know what you're talking about when you say that word. The concept of it is in the Bible. It is when the dead in Christ are raised from uh, mortal to immortality and the living saints are changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye, the sound last trump, and together we are with the Lord not only in the air, but we meet with him in heaven. Because Jesus said in John 14, if I go away, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. So he, he predicted this. Jesus predicted this in his own ministry. Now, the, the idea about when the doctrine originated. This now,
0: is, I've heard the 1800s. Is that true?
1: No, no. In, in fact, this idea where people say that the catching away teaching is not found in any early fathers and it started in the 1800s in the Greek Orthodox Church or in the Orthodox Church, there was a man named Ephraim the Syrian in the 5th century who was an early father in that branch of the church. And in Cave of the Treasures and Treaties of the Antichrist, he specifically talks about the Lord coming before the Tribulation. And because because the Protestant uh, church came out of Roman Catholicism, a lot of the documents that we use are the early fathers from the Roman side, which would be Origen, Lactantius, and these particular fathers. However, uh, from the Greek side uh, the Greek church has had these documents for years and I've talked to guys who are 10 years scholars in the, in the Orthodox branch and they say we have had a teaching of the, in, among the fathers of a return and even a return before the tribulation and so that's a whole other issue there but the point is where is it in the Bible Okay, now, now let, let, me, let, me, let me have people follow me here very carefully first of all the pattern of the rapture is Exodus 19, because everything revealed in the New Testament has a root somewhere in the Torah, the five books of Moses. Exodus 19 is Moses going on Mount Sinai, notice the place, and it says that there was lightning, thunder, smoke, a voice of a trumpet, the the voice of the trumpet waxing louder and longer. Then it says, and the Lord came down and Moses went up. So the pattern of the catching away of the Lord descending from heaven and the saints going up is Exodus chapter 19. Now, having said that, come to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talks about after his conversion, how he went into Arabia, where he spent time receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. He then tells you in chapter 3, Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Now, here's what happened. After Paul's conversion, he was going to be a preacher to the Gentiles. He goes to Mount Sinai in Arabia where Moses got the commandments, and he received seven revelations from Jesus Christ that nobody else had received. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there are, and, and we bring this out in the Apocalypse Code teaching, we'll show people this, there were seven revelations that Paul received, the revelation of Israel's blindness in Revelation 11, the grafting into the Gentiles, the revelation of the mystery of Christ in the church, the, the you know all these different revelations. He got that alone and wrote about them in his letters. Now, here's what's interesting. When Paul returned back to write his first letter, according to scholars, this 14 letters that Paul wrote, if, if we assume he wrote the book of Hebrews, and I believe he did. So there's 14 epistles that Paul wrote of 14 letters. The very first one happens to be to the church of Thessalonica, Greece, which was 1 Thessalonians. In our Bible, in 1 Thessalonians, It's divided into five chapters. In each chapter, he mentions the return of the Lord, but in chapter 4, he gives the church a revelation that's never been known to this level before, about the Lord descending from heaven and the saints being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, here's a question, Sid. You're going to love this. Why did the Lord wait until the Apostle Paul was called as a preacher to Gentiles to reveal the revelation of the catching away of the church? And the answer is, I love this, in the Acts 2, all the way to Acts chapter, uh, right around 10, up to chapter 10, the church was all Jewish because Gentiles had not yet been brought into the covenant. In Acts 10, the first Gentiles are brought into the covenant. So God waits until the church is both Jew and and Gentile, you talked about the one new man there, he waits and then in chapter 9 you have the conversion uh, you have chapter 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the preacher to the Gentiles the Jewish rabbi who's going to go to Mount Sinai and get the revelation of this rapture and then after the Gentiles are grafted into the covenant in chapter 10, you suddenly start seeing Paul preaching and he starts preaching to Jews and Gentiles about the Messiah revealing these revelations in his letters, so the the first letter Paul wrote, he reveals the catching away of the saints because he'd been on Mount Sinai where the Lord had come down and Moses went up and received the law. And now he's receiving the revelation of the covenant and the message of the covenant in the same spot. And this is all in the book of Galatians, in the same place where Moses received the Torah and the revelation of, of the things of God. And so the rapture teaching or the catching away teaching was the very first thing Paul taught the church and God waited. You see, Israel knew there was coming a messianic kingdom. They knew the king was going to come back to the earth. Zechariah said his feet would come to the Mount of Olives. He would stand there and the mount would split and the king would rule from Jerusalem. The Jews already knew the Messiah was going to come back to rule on the earth. That was established throughout the old covenant. But what nobody realized was there was going to be another return of which believers uh, who believed in Christ would be resurrected, the dead in Christ, and the saints of God would be changed to meet the Lord in the air. And then we would return with him after the judgment, the Bema, after the marriage supper of the Lamb, all of that takes place in heaven. Then we would return with the king to the earth to fulfill the scriptures which were given to ancient Israel about their king Messiah. So it's, Paul's revelation actually came in the same place where Moses had received the Torah, which was on Mount Sinai in Arabia. To me, that just, when I, when I dubbed this out, Grant Jeffrey, you, you knew Grant. Grant of course. Grant was a prophecy writer. Grant told me when I taught this, he said, Perry, I've studied things all my life and never put that together. Together till you taught
0: it, and, uh, you, you've put so many things together in your teaching on Revelation. Uh, but uh, the big debate with m- many of my friends is not whether there'll be a rapture. I mean, that's a no-brainer. The big debate is: is it going to be before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, just before the wrath? Is, is, and I, and and then there's there's dozens of other views. Uh, what? with your 80,000 hours of study what's your conclusion
1: think let's just let's just take one one little nugget here the, and, and the early fathers agree on this that the first 42 months of the tribulation, uh, two witnesses come. Some say um, Elijah and Moses, some say Elijah and Enoch. I'll stick with Elijah and Enoch, but I don't argue it. is definitely one of them based on Malachi 4 5. He will return the first 42 months as the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation 11. Now, follow me carefully. Revelation 11, 12, and 13 is the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. But in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, these two witnesses are killed. Now, Sid, thankfully for a moment. You do not see the church in the book of Revelation after chapter three. The word church ecclesia is not mentioned anywhere from that point on. Now, interestingly enough, in chapter four, verse one, there's a transition. John hears a voice saying, come up here, hears a voice of a trumpet. And immediately he's in the spirit of the throne room. And then these these elders and beasts are worshiping God. And then a multitude is crying out, you have redeemed us out of every nation. That's the church. They've been caught up. But uh, when you look at this the, how the how the book of Revelation is set up, you discover that the the church, uh, Christ told the believers, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. Uh, now, why would we? Well, how would we pray, pray worthy to escape? Escape what? And the answer is, beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation, uh, you see the tribulation judgments being poured out. Let me go back to these two witnesses for a moment because it's really interesting. If the church is still on earth the first 42 months of the tribulation, what is the necessity of two witnesses? Because they are the only ones declaring the gospel. They're the only ones on earth preaching preaching the gospel, is these two men. Now, if the church is here, we should still be preaching it because we're supposed to preach it and then the income Of course to Matthew twenty four fourteen, The second thing is when the two witnesses are killed and raised back up to God in heaven, then the last 42 months of the tribulation begins, and it says an angel comes down from heaven preaching the everlasting gospel and warning people not to take the mark. An angel. So where's the church? How come the church is not warning people? Uh, whoops. I'll tell
0: you what, I'll give everyone a warning. We're out of time right now. I believe that if there's ever been a time that the true believers in the Messiah must understand uh, all the future things that are going to happen based on the book of Revelation and the other books of the entire Bible, it's now. On yesterday's broadcast, we were talking about a very controversial issue. Most people don't even want to talk about it because it's so controversial. And that is the time of the catching away or as... It's referred to the rapture. Uh, in your opinion, when will this be in reference to the tribulation, in reference to the pouring out of God's wrath?
1: I think most people who are we would classify evangelical believers come have an understanding that Daniel 9.27 predicts seven years of time, and in that midst of the seven years, a man who is coming breaks a treaty in the middle of the seven. You can see that clearly in the book of Revelation. The man who breaks the treaty is called the beast rising up out of the sea, Revelation 13.1. He's better known as the Antichrist. He breaks the treaty, and in our Bible, it's listed in chapter 13, which chronologically, according to the timing of the book of Revelation, is the middle of the tribulation. And that correlates with Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now, people have asked me for years, you know, uh, pre-trib means at some point before the the breaking of the seven-sealed book in the book of Revelation, the saints are in heaven, before the tribulation begins. Mid-trib would put the catching away at either chapter 11, 12, and 13, which all of that is around the time frame of the middle. That's called mid-trib. Others believe in what's called post trib post trib means end of or the conclusion of something. So post trib would be, I call it the U-turn theory. It's Revelation 19. At the end of the tribulation, we're caught up. We go to heaven. We immediately do a U-turn and get on horses and come back down to the earth. And some just basically uh, teach that, you know, the Lord re- returns and sets up his kingdom at the end, and, and that's the end of it. So beginning of, middle of, end of the tribulation. Now, let me explain to you three, three quick reasons why I believe in what's called pre-trip. Point number one, in the, the, the book of Revelation is basically in a chronological order. Now, John will jump from heaven back to earth, under the earth back to heaven, and you have to recognize that in the study. And that's the reason that the Apocalypse Code is good, because it explains in detail, the order of things. And John is here one minute, and he's there the next. Because so John is seeing in three worlds at one time. Now, have to understand that. But concerning the timing, notice that the church is mentioned in chapter 2 and 3. And John is told, show or write about the things that were, the things that are, and the things that shall be. The things that were is chapter 1, he saw Christ as the high priest. The things that are, are the churches of Asia that he addressed the message to, seven churches. The things that shall be our future tense, past the church age, in other words. The church age is called in the New Testament the dispensation of the grace of God. So we are dispensing to the world, through the gospel, the grace of God, the message of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and covenant. When that season comes to a conclusion... There will be a catching up of the overcoming church. Now, when I say overcomers, he said seven times to the overcomer, to the overcomer, to the overcomer, to the overcomer. An overcomer is someone who follows the Lord, has a covenant with Christ, and is looking for him to return, doing his will on the earth. That's the overcomer, basic basic definition of the overcomer. Now, back to the timing of the rapture. Chapter 3, last verse, is the last word to the church. Chapter 4, verse 1, after these things... I heard a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. Now, when the Lord returns, he comes with the sound voice of the archangel and the trump of God. At some point at the rapture, we will hear, come up here, and there will be the sound of a trumpet. And immediately we will be in heaven that quick. That's what happened to John. Chapter 4, Revelation, verse 1 and 2. I believe that is the imagery that John saw of the church's appearance before the heavenly throne room. Now, let's go forward and show this. In the mid-trib in Revelation eleven eighteen, it says, Now has come time to judge the saints, the prophets, and those who fear his name. That is known as the Bema or the Judgment Seat of Christ. It is mentioned by Paul in Corinthians. It's mentioned by Paul in Romans. We must all appear before the Judgment Seat of Christ to receive rewards for things which we did. And we can gain a crown or we can lose a crown based upon did we do the work of God he called us to do. Now, that happens in chapter 11 which happens to be the middle of the tribulation period. Chronologically, it's there. You can't deny it. A person who studies the book can't deny it. That means the church is in heaven in chapter 11. Now, some would say, okay, that's a pre-trib catching away. No. You see the multitude in chapter 4 and another multitude coming out of tribulation in chapter 7. So you see this multitude in chapter 4 and 5 standing there around the throne of God, worshiping God, singing, worthy is the Lamb who's redeemed us. Now, so... We come now to Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, under the, under, in the Torah, when a man and woman married, the Bible says in Deuteronomy they were given one year off to get to know each other, and the man could not go to war with one year. Now, I believe that as the tribulation is going on on earth, it starts at the breaking of the first seal, and then the sixth year of it is when Mystery Babylon is destroyed in chapter 17 18. I believe that the marriage supper in heaven is one year long. And here's the reason why. God worked six days on the seventh day he rested. On certain feasts of Israel, you had a season of complete rest during that feast. Some feasts went for seven days. You had uh, you know, Passover and uh, unleavened bread and first fruits, which is all through a seven-day period. And you have tabernacles, which is seven days. So here's my point. I believe the marriage supper is not just a 24-hour, let's have a supper and, and go back to earth and rule. I believe we really celebrate for an entire year because the Bible said there remains, therefore, a rest for God's people. And when Paul used that word rest in Hebrews, it's the Greek word for a Sabbath rest. So as God rested on the seventh day, you know you, there, there was a, a, a jubilee law, you know this, that every seven years – Six years you worked, the seventh year you rested, and the land rested. There's your principle of in heaven, six years of tribulation, while the tribulation is going on in the seventh year on earth. We're in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb for that period of time. Uh,
0: Perry, how does this, just briefly, how does this tie in with the ancient Jewish wedding?
1: Well, one of the things that intrigued me years ago, Sid, is when we, we reenacted with 100 cast members the entire Jewish wedding based on all the evidence that you can find from historical sources, Jewish sources. And what I found out that was intriguing to me is uh, in the time of, of Christ and in the old time, Samson, if you'll read the story of Samson in Judges for seven days, they, he gave a riddle and at the end of the seven days he told the riddle and it was a wedding. And then... And the New Testament, they ran out of wine in John chapter 2, and the reason they did is the celebration went on for seven straight days. And when I started realizing that the number seven is connected to the ancient Jewish wedding and that how the saints or the church, who is who is the bride of Christ, he is the bridegroom, where the bride will be called up to meet him in the air, and the parables bear this out, then that seven Days that that you read about in in ancient Jewish wedding can represent the seven years that we're in heaven with the bridegroom. And there is a law in the Bible where Israel uh, doubted the Lord, the 12 spies, 10 spies did, for 40 days, and God made them wonder a year for every day that they doubted. So there is this, uh, you know, uh, the prophet of God laid on one side for over 300 and some days representing 300 and some years that Israel was in disobedience in the 40 years that Judah was in those disobedience. He, he did 40 days. So there's a day for a year exchange that can be found in Scripture. So using that principle, if the Jewish wedding was seven days in length, which it was, then the tribulation is seven years on earth, which would mean that we would be seven years in heaven. And that's really—I mean, we could—you know, you can go into the seven-sealed book and how that had to be seven witnesses that originally put the—
0: Real quick, because I'm curious. In in, in one or two sentences, who are the 144,000 witnesses?
1: They definitely, in Revelation 14, are Jewish men— they're virgin men; they've never been married, and during the first part of the tribulation, they are sealed by the seal of God. Did
0: you ever tell a Jehovah's Witness that? <laughs> I'm just teasing. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> they preached that for years till they got 144,001 members, and then what do you do with that? <laughs> <laughs> so they were fine till they till when they had less than 144,000.
0: Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, Perry. I'm sorry, Mishbucha. We're out of time again. But how would you like to go slowly? with all these facts and have a syllabus guide and the most wonderful illustrations explaining everything Perry is talking about in the seven DVDs, Breaking the Apocalypse Code, Unlocking Future Prophetic Mysteries Predicted in the Book of Revelation, available for a gift of $75. This is the Shabbat broadcast. The Lord is blessing you. Right now, the Lord, he's smiling upon you. Right now, the Lord is showering you with his favor. Right now, the Lord is surrounding you and literally putting into your body his gifting. Right now, the Lord. Is giving you his shalom, his completeness in your spirit, in your soul, and in your body right now in the name that is above every name, Yeshua HaMashiach Tzichenu, Jesus the Messiah, our righteousness. We are sem enough To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming mishpucha or Chalatzim, write to me, Sidroth, Post Office Box. 39222 Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast... Send a donation to Sid Roth, that's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.